the law of the sea is perhaps the oldest branch of international law. It is as old as international law itself. Hugo Grotius, the famous 17th century Dutch scholar, is considered to be the founding father of international law. Well, he is also the founding father of the law of the sea through his famous book on the freedom of the seas. The law of the sea since Grotius has passed through complicated evolutions. However, for about three centuries, it was mostly based on customary law. But it was also a rather simple law based on a couple of important assumptions that the sea was a vast expanse free for all with the exception of a narrow band of sea, uh, three miles, four miles, the cannon shot uh, close to the coast. Very little else mattered. In the, starting with the 19th century and even more so moving towards the end of that century, uh, things became much more complicated. Um, oil was discovered underneath the seabed beyond the limits of the territorial sea. So it was that the new idea of the continental shelf emerged in the 40s and 50s and other activities began to be conducted in the sea, under the sea, not only the traditional ones, navigation and fishing. This is why the modern law of the sea is becoming a treaty-based branch of the law. The United Nations conducted the first exercise in codification of the law of the sea, uh, which produced the Geneva Conventions, four conventions on the law of the sea of 1958. This was mostly a, a codification of what already was the law uh, on which uh, states um, developed their relationships on the seas. However, just after Geneva, a momentous change happened in the international community. About a high number of states that used to be colonies or ter dependent territories became independent. So the international community doubled its size in a very few years. And this, of course, had an echo on the law of the sea. Different priorities emerged. Navigation was not the top priority for uh, the, new, uh, the new states. They had more urgent concerns, especially that of ensuring control over the fisheries and the oil resources in the seas adjacent to their coast. So it was that just at the moment the Geneva Convention entered into force around 1964, a, a strong movement towards total reform of the law of the sea was started. And this brought about the third United Nations Conference for the law of the sea, which through a very 
long procedure going from 73 up to um, 83, 10 years of work, produced the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which in turn, through another painful series of negotiations, could enter into force in 1994 after a substantial amendment to one of its 17 parts was accepted. The law of the sea is perhaps the oldest branch of international law. It is as old as international law itself. Hugo Grotius, the famous 17th century Dutch scholar, is considered to be the founding father of international law. Well, he is also the founding father of the law of the sea through his famous book on the freedom of the seas. The law of the sea, since Grotius, has passed through complicated evolutions. However, for about three centuries, it was mostly based on customary law. But it was also a rather simple law based on a couple of important assumptions that the sea was a vast expanse free for all with the exception of a narrow band of sea, uh, three miles, four miles, the cannon shot uh, close to the coast. Very little else mattered. In the, starting with the 19th century and even more so moving towards the end of that century, uh, things became much more complicated. Um, oil was discovered underneath the seabed, beyond the limits of the territorial sea. So it was that the new idea of the continental shelf emerged in the 40s and 50s, and other activities began to be conducted in the sea, under the sea, not only the traditional ones, navigation and fishing. This is why the modern law of the sea is becoming a treaty-based branch of the law. The United Nations conducted the first exercise in codification of the law of the sea, uh, which produced the Geneva Conventions, four conventions on the law of the sea of 1958. This was mostly a, a codification of what already was the law uh, on which uh, states um, developed their relationships on the seas. However, just after Geneva, a momentous change happened in the international community about a high number of states that used to be colonies or ter dependent territories became independent. So the international community doubled its size in a very few years. And this, of course, had an echo on the law of the sea. Different priorities emerged. Navigation was not the top priority for uh, the new uh, the new states, they had more urgent concerns, especially that of ensuring 
control over the fisheries and the oil resources in the seas adjacent to their coast. So it was that just at the moment the Geneva Convention entered into force around 1964, a, a strong movement towards total reform of the law of the sea was started. And this brought about the third United Nations Conference for the Law of the Sea, which through a very long procedure going from 73 up to um, 83, 10 years of work, produced the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which in turn, through another painful series of negotiations, could enter into force in 1994 after a substantial amendment to one of its 17 parts was accepted. So if you look at the law of the sea as it is now, is, has not it has not forgotten its customary origin. Customary law is still of a certain importance. However, it is mostly treaty-based branch of the law. And the basis of the basis, if one may say so, is the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea of 1982, entered into force in 94. This is a comprehensive code on the law of the sea. It, ha it has more than 400 articles, some of which are one page long. So it is a complex and complicated text which tries to address all the issues of the law of the sea. Sometimes uh, developing detailed rules, sometimes putting, developing only uh, framework rules that are to be further developed in other conventions. So it is very clear that today the Law of the Sea Convention of 1982 is the text of reference. Whenever a state has a problem concerning the Law of the Sea, a ship is arrested, um, there are discussions with neighbors about sea borders on the continental shelf or the economic zone, the legal advisor takes this book, which is the Law of the Sea Convention, and looks for the relevant provision. And then, if he, he finds it, he has safe ground on which to argue with the other side. Of course, there may be different views about what one finds in the Convention, as all treaties it is made up of sentences and words, and each of them may have different meanings. So a problem of interpretation arises. And this problem is compounded by the fact that this convention, as all important conventions of the United Nations, is authentic in six different languages, the six languages of the United Nations. And there is no rule that says that one of those is the preferred one. It is true 
that most negotiations were conducted in English. But there was a very complex procedure through the drafting com committee of the convention, which ensured that all the texts are not only in law, but as far as possible only also in fact equivalent. But the problems of interpretation exist. And of course, in international law, all the actors are entitled to interpret the law. But the actors are many. If, even if we are we limiting ourselves to states and to state parties to the convention, there are about 150. To this date, I think 155. And so there may be 155 different opinions about the, meeting, the meaning of certain sentences. So one of the most important achievements of the Law of the Sea Convention is that it is a convention which provides for mechanism for interpretation of its text through judicial uh, intervention, judicial and arbitral means. Uh, this is a very momentous change in the history of codification of international law. If you look at all the conventions developed by the United Nations through the mechanism of the International Law Commission and the usual uh, procedure of codification conventions, you will see that when you get to the chapter on the settlement of dispute, you find very mild provisions, provisions that do not permit to a state to do what a person does in domestic law, namely to sue a person before another state before a judge. Well, under the Law of the Sea Convention, you have exactly this, the so-called so-called compulsory, comp compulsory mechanism for jurisdiction. One state can trigger an arbitration or a judicial uh, proceedings uh, unilaterally. Of course, we will see it uh, later, is not a perfect system, is not a 100% system, but still is a total change as compared even to the most important conventions developed by the United Nations. Of course, there are reasons why this change was brought about. A, an efficient system for settling disputes concerning the interpretation and the application of the Law of the Sea Convention is necessary not only for the normal general reasons that make that compulsory settlement is a good idea for whatever convention. Here we have reasons that are strictly connected with the subject matter the convention deals with. The convention, through its 400 articles, strikes a very delicate balance between the interests of coastal states and the interests of the, all the other states. Coastal states are keen on preserving their resources, the resources of the seas in their continental shelf, in their economic zone. Other states are keen on ensuring that sovereignty or sovereign rights of, on such resources do not hinder the exercise of traditional 
freedoms as freedom of navigation, of laying cables, of overflight, and also of other activities. The articles of the convention, each article almost of the convention, tries to strike a balance between these opposing interests, sometimes with very subtle language, sometimes also with ambiguous language. And you would say to have a convention with ambiguous language is to have a bad convention. Provision sh uh, should not be ambiguous. Well, this is the ideal world. But in the real world, sometimes it's better to have an ambiguous provision that makes parties to agree than to have no provision. If then you have a body, a trusted body, that can solve the ambiguity, this is even better. This is what the Convention does. It has a mechanism for settling disputes which might uh, be based on ambiguous provisions, be they ambiguous because of bad drafting or because of voluntarily ambiguous drafting. <coughs> and, but this is not the only reason why it is important to have a mechanism for the settlement of the kind we have. Sometimes in maritime matters there are conflicts that explode uh, without warning. A ship is stopped in the middle of the sea, um, violence is exercised, the ship is brought with force to a port. States have to react quickly in order to avoid this kind of episode to degenerate in tension and even uh, perhaps sometimes a threat to the peace. And this is why the Convention provides for certain hypotheses for a very quick means of settlement. There is a special procedure called the prompt release of vessel procedure that permits to have a quick decision by a new international judicial body, the Law of the Sea Tribunal, which has its seat in Hamburg, Germany, that permits in very few weeks to have a binding decision to solve conflict based on detention of a ship uh, in violation of certain provisions of the Convention. And so it is that when a bigger, more complicated um, dispute has exploded, it may be useful to have provisional measures, namely a, a quick decision uh, by a judge or an arbitrator to <coughs> preserve, although on an interim basis, rights that might be prejudiced if the, during the time needed to get to a final solution. This is always provided for. It's also, sorry, provided for <coughs> in the Law of the Sea Conventions, Article 290, which has can be seen as an evolution of similar provisions in the statute of the International Court of Justice. And of course, if you look at all the cases that have so far been uh, decided by courts and tribunals even before the birth of the Law of the Sea Convention, you will see that most of them concern delimitation matters, namely the borders 
between the maritime areas of states, the borders between continental shelves of neighboring states and so on. Well, the Law of the Sea <coughs> Convention provides for compulsory jurisdiction on matters of delimitation. It is true that such compulsory jurisdiction can be taken away by a unilateral declaration uh, that states may make. So far, there are about 20 to 25 such declarations, which uh, with 150 states is not too bad. You can also consider, have also to consider that some of the 150 are landlocked, so they do not have a problem of delimitation. But even so, one can say that about 100 states are bound by compulsory jurisdiction provisions on matters of delimitation. And the first decisions on delimitation based on the Law of the Sea Convention have been handed out in 2006 in the case between Barbados and Trinidad and Tobago and in 207 in the case between Guyana and Suriname by arbitration tribunals based on the Law of the Sea Convention. In the Law of the Sea Convention are a very constitute a very complicated and complex system. It's not only one judge, it is not only judicial solution. It is a full array of mechanisms. We have first what one could call diplomatic non-compulsory methods of settlement, such as negotiation, such as um, conciliation in certain cases, and only when such methods prove ineffective, can more binding mechanism be used. But before using the binding mechanism set out in the Convention, one must pay attention to certain provisions, like article, especially Article 282 of the Convention, which make transform the compulsory system of the Law of the Sea Convention in what one could call a default system, which works unless there are already in place and binding for the parties other systems that are as effective. If, for instance, two states that have a Law of the Sea dispute <coughs> have both accepted the compulsory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice under Article 36, Paragraph 2, of its statute, there is no need to use the law of the sea provisions. The, the case can be brought to the court. So it is that the law of the sea convention contains a mechanism to prevent conflicts between courts. Conflicts between courts is a very fashionable subject nowadays because there are many courts and tribunals active in the law of the sea. The law of the sea convention has provisions that try to avoid such a system. But if Article 282 is not to be used because there is no other mechanism in place, then the parties can trigger an arbitration or a judicial settlement. Uh, it was difficult for the states meeting at the Law of the Sea conference to decide who would exercise compulsory jurisdiction, which 
adjudicator would be the appropriate body. And so they decided uh, what has been sometimes called a buffet or smorgasbord uh, system. State set, uh, disputes can be settled either by a new permanent body, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, or by an old permanent body, the International Court of Justice, or by ad hoc arbitration bodies to be constituted after a dispute uh, has arisen. Uh, there are even two kinds of arbitration bodies, a general arbitration with general competence, so-called Annex 7 arbitration, and specialized arbitrations, which so far have not been experimented, in fields like pollution, marine science, navigation, and so on. States may, whenever they wish, indicate a preference through a declaration for one or more of these systems. If a dispute arises between two states that have indicated the same preference, this will be the adjudicating body to exercise compulsory jurisdiction. If a state has not expressed the preference, he will presume to have chosen general arbitration, Annex 7 arbitration. And this is also the situation that prevails if two states have made different choices. So the system is based on four options, but in fact one option is the default one which has more chances of being used, and this is arbitration. Um, the fact that the framers of the Law of the Sea Convention have adopted this plurality of judges for deciding disputes means that they were not too much concerned about the possibility that the plurality of competent bodies uh, could entail divergent interpretations of uh, the Convention. You know that there is a lot of discussion nowadays uh, in international law about the possible conflicts of jurisprudence that could be the consequence of a plurality of judges sitting in various parts of the world applying international law. And as you know, certain legal experts are very concerned about these possibilities. Others say that the alarm is exaggerated. I do not have time today to go into this discussion. I belong to the second category. In any case, certainly those who wrote the Law of the Sea Convention also belong to this second category because they considered that it was much preferable to have four tri different tribunals than to have no possibility of settling disputes. What was important for the framers of the Convention is that as many disputes as possible which concern the interpretation of the Law of the Sea Convention could be settled by a judge or by an arbitrator with a binding decision. Of course, 
this was the ideal purpose, it is not completely obtained in the Law of the Sea Convention. A price to be paid for having such a forward-looking uh, mechanism for the settlement of dispute was that certain categories of disputes were left out of the mechanism. And these are, in essence, the disputes concerning the exercise of sovereign rights and jurisdiction by the coastal state in its exclusive economic zone and on its continental shelf. Disputes concerning these matters, which include uh, fisheries, for instance, and scientific research, are excluded. However, and this is one of the most complicated provisions of the whole convention, Article 297, there are exceptions to the exceptions. In fact, disputes when the, where the subject matter is a conflict between the exercise of the sovereign rights of the coastal state and the exercise of high seas freedoms uh, that apply on the exclusive economic zone, namely in particular navigation, uh, overflight and laying of cables and pipelines, then in these cases there is compulsory jurisdiction. And uh, there are even more complicated provisions that permits in certain case um, lacking settlement, uh, binding settlement of dispute to use conciliation. This has never been put in practice so far. And apart from these situations that are excluded automatically by the convention, there are a few other categories of disputes which may be excluded through a unilateral declaration by parties. These include questions of delimitation I have already mentioned, include uh, military and police activities at sea, include uh, matters that are being considered by the United Nations Security Council. But uh, all things considered, these exceptions are rather minor. And it must also be said that not too many states have taken advantage of them, as I mentioned a few minutes ago about delimitation. Some states have taken advantage of one of them, but not of the others, a few of all the possibilities. After the Law of the Sea Convention entered into force, we have also assisted to an interesting new phenomenon, namely other conventions concerning specific aspects of the Law of the Sea have been adopted. In particular, in 1995, the United Nations adopted the so-called Fish Stocks Agreement, an agreement of about 50 articles, a complicated agreement, that developed certain short, perhaps too short, provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention. 
what is interesting for our purpose to underline is that the starting stocks agreement has a chapter on the settlement of disputes which says that the provisions of part 15 of the law of the sea convention namely the dispute settlement provisions of the law of the sea convention shall apply mutatis mutandis to disputes concerning the interpretation and application of the stocks agreement so even when the parties to the dispute are not parties to the law of the sea convention provided of course that they are parties to the starting stocks agreement this mechanism has been followed by a number of other agreements mostly on fisheries but not all on fisheries there is an agreement a, a draft convention on archaeological objects adopted within the framework of UNESCO there is a very recent convention on wreck removal adopted in the framework of the International Maritime Organization and other conventions either adopted or in the process of being adopted utilize the same mechanism which means that now we have a family of conventions concerning the law of the sea not necessarily do they have the same contracting parties but they have the same dispute settlement mechanism which of course transform these scattered conventions in a system of convention and this can be seen as a interesting sign of progress uh, a system based on mostly on convention conventions is a complicated and basically uh, dispute prone system the more provisions are contained in a convention of course the more problems are solved but between the black letter articles there are white spaces and there lie the future uh, disputes the legislator even the international legislator the states parties to conventions can if they are good address the problems they know of but they cannot address problems that have not yet arisen and this is why a mechanism for the settlement of disputes is a necessary system in order to adapt existing provisions to new situations the law of the sea tribunal which is the main body that has been set up to settle disputes in the matters concerning uh, the interpretation and application of the convention has had so far about 14 or 15 cases and in most of these cases problems that are not directly envisaged by the convention have been considered just to make an example in its very first case the law of the sea tribunal had to deal with an activity that nobody thought of when the law of the sea convention was drafted namely bunkering at sea the activity of certain um, 
oil tankers that function as a gas pump at sea. Is this activity to be considered part of freedom of navigation? Is it to be considered under the jurisdiction of the coastal state if it is conducted on the, um, within the economic zone? Is to be considered subject to whatever regime applies to the ship that receives the bunker? All these are questions that have been put on the table by a case. Nobody had thought about it before. In another case, the tribunal had to do with land reclamation, namely the process of adding to your territory at the expense of the sea. This has always been considered a free activity, but what if th this has negative impacts on the navigational rights or on the environmental rights of your neighbor? This is a subject that was discussed in the Law of the Sea Tribunal in a case between Malaysia and Singapore. If we, to conclude, if we have, if we try to see what has happened in the disputes after, concerning, in the disputes concerning the Law of the Sea after the Law of the Sea Convention has entered into force in the last 12 or 13 years. We see that the law, the International Court of Justice has been quite active in questions concerning the law of the sea, especially, I would say, exclusively as far as delimitation is concerned. It has uh, decided very important cases. However, in no case has the International Court of Justice uh, be, been invested of jurisdiction on the basis of the Law of the Sea Convention. The International Court of Justice has based its jurisdiction either on agreement of the parties or on an unilateral application based on Article 36 of the statute. Other courts and tribunals mentioned in the Law of the Sea Convention have, however, had to do uh, with cases brought on the basis of the Convention, and I would say on the, always on the compulsory mechanism for settlement set out in the Convention. Uh, this has been the case especially of the Law of the Sea Tribunal, which has had, as I mentioned before, in these years, 15 different cases. However, there are also there is also a number of cases that has been brought to so-called Annex 7 arbitration. Of these cases, which are five or six to my recollection, only two have arrived to a decision on the merits. And these are the two arbitrations in the Caribbean areas concerning the limitation of maritime areas, which I mentioned before and which were decided in 2006. 2007. The Law of the Sea Tribunal has had one big contentious case, the Saiga case, about this question of bunkering I mentioned before, and a number of prompt release cases in which it intervened quickly on matters that uh, could exacerbate relationship between states involved in specific incidents. 
it has also a number of times uh, prescribed provisional measures in cases that were to be decided by arbitration tribunals. And in all these cases, it has developed an approach which you could call a dispute management approach, which is quite different from the usual provisional measures approach of tribunals. It tries to help parties to settle their dispute. Of course, these were cases that had environmental implications. Perhaps in cases of a different kind, the approach would not be uh, as successful as it was. In particular, in the land reclamation case, the Law of the Sea Tribunal, through its provisional measures, succeeded in having parties agree on a settlement which the competent arbitration tribunal could just adopt as part of its award. Well, coming to the very conclusion of uh, this uh, short talk, the dispute settlement has become an integral part of the system of the law of the sea. And this is a very momentous development in international law because up to now, dispute settlement was a kind of separate appendix, a kind of luxury certain state, states accepted when accepting a convention. Now, if a state wants to be party to this universal convention, and 155 has so done, it has also to accept that a judge or an arbitration can settle the possible dispute. And this, in my view at least, is an important step forward in international law.